This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline. Bloodline, the new book by Skip Heitzig, takes you on a journey to discover an up-close view of the cross, revealing God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. Bloodline is available wherever books are sold. It is Wednesday, April 3rd, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, we will be talking with one of our latest hires here at Christianity Today about immigration. really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you everyone for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm with my co-host, Mark Galley. Great to see you. Have you in this room, Mark? Yep. Good to be here. So we have one of our co-workers that is joining us today. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yeah. her? Uh, Becca McNeil is CT's newly acquired immigrant communities editor. She lives in her hometown, San Antonio, Texas, where she has reported local, statewide, and national news in education and immigration in, in the likes of the Texas Tribune and the Christian Science Monitor. Her family, husband Lewis and children Moira and Asa, now know more about these subjects than they ever wanted to, but are pretty good-natured about the whole thing, she says. Welcome, Becca. Hi, Becca. Thank How are you, guys. You? I'm doing very well. Very happy to uh, be chatting with you guys. We are also really happy that you get to talk to us, and um, I'm sure we'll tease this more at the end, but we are just finishing our May issue right now, and from what I understand, you're the author of the cover story for that issue? That is true. While reporting on education a while back, I ran into these students along the Texas-Mexico border who crossed school for school every day, and realized that they did not have access to a ton of support that they might have if they were residents of the United States. They are citizens, they're not residents, and started asking about the campus ministries, such as Young Life, that minister to these kids. And, and when they get involved, how do those ministries address and, and bring Jesus' love to the very, very specific challenges that um, are before these kids who walk to school over an international border. Well, I hope that intrigues everybody. Again, the issue is not out, but if you want to read it, it will be in the May issue. It was helpful for me, having been a, a longtime Young Life supporter. I sat on the Young Life Committee here. I wasn't aware of their work there at on on the border, and I thought that was very very good to hear about it. I'm hoping that it uh, broadens people's view of young life because it's not just suburban kids doing club on Monday night, but the stuff that they're doing is pretty nitty gritty daily life stuff. This is not an episode about young life, <laughs> but props to young life. We'll, do, it, we'll do, do that some other time. The ways that they've impacted a lot of young people super intentionally. Um, but let's talk mm -hmm. about immigration right now. So, for the past few years, immigration has been in the news, and I think when I say that, obviously it's been in the news for a long time, but it's really, really, really robustly been in the news and been covered. Um, and I think if you're a listener of this show, you've heard us speak about it a lot of times on Quick to Listen. So you've probably heard our episodes on family separations at the border, the loss of temporary protected status, or TPS, in this case, for the Salvadorian community, and significant cuts to the refugee program. So thanks to a grant from a philanthropic organization that in this case wishes to remain anonymous, uh, we have been able to hire a part-time editor of immigrant communities to explore a different dimension to the immigration controversies. And of course, that editor here is Becca. Her focus is not so much on the political dimensions of immigration, but as she was talking about in her story, or when she was talking about her story, as she hinted at, it's about the life of immigrant communities on both sides of the border, their challenges, their successes, and especially the role that Christian faith plays in these really tense immigration situations. 
So this week on Quick to Listen, we want to talk about some of the most pressing immigration stories and how they intersect with the church. In fact, how are Christians represented on all sides of the immigration issue or debate or controversy or whatever hot button word you would use there? So... Mark, as far as gut checks are concerned, you know, like I've said, we have talked about this issue right now. I'm just curious when you hear the word immigration, though, do you have some sort of visceral reaction that you feel, you know, right now in 2019? Uh, Probably a little bit of tension because that's when it is in the news. It's about tension, about the disagreement over policy, disagreement over how we understand people, especially from the United States who are coming from other areas to our country. But uh, I'm, I'm going to switch the question uh, just to say, when I heard that we were hiring someone for the specific task of immigrant communities editor, my heart soared because, uh, as I've mentioned on my, uh, on, I probably mentioned, my wife works for World Relief, and one of her jobs is to help uh, immigrants, refugees, whatever their status, uh, asylees, find work in America. Um, and so we've been invited to participate in some activities of the immigrant communities that are here in DuPage County. And when you enter into those situations, the situation all of a sudden becomes apolitical. It becomes very human. And you're meeting with people, with human beings. Uh, we went to the dedication of a church uh, uh, recently, which, in which I hardly understood any of the, <laughs> any of the language. But it was just... Uh, it was just that put a whole different picture and feeling on what immigration is than simply people protesting at the border about this, that, or the other thing. So uh, immigration community, immigrant communities, strikes me as a really interesting way to talk about it. It kind of is this like unexpected gentle note to what is kind of uh, more, Yeah, just more humane. We're dealing with real people with, with families and children and relatives and, yeah, well, churches what- too, yeah. What I was going to say for my gut check is that when I think about immigration right now, I, as someone who is not directly connected to most of these issues, feel a little bit burnt out. And that, again, that's saying something since I don't really have close relationships with stuff that's happening at the border in our country right now. And I would kind of second the fact that the fact that we are going to have a, a community angle or a community focus or lens, I guess, that we're approaching these things. We, I think at CTE, really try to produce material that is not going to just further exhaust people. And so I, I think this is a way that, yeah, we're trying to be really thoughtful about how we approach it and how we can both um, paint stories really accurately, but also encourage people about this at the same time. Becca, I would love for you to kind of share with our listeners about how long you've been covering immigration and how you got into the the beat originally. Most of my career has been as an education reporter, but uh, I live in San Antonio, Texas. And so the joke was when school's out, I cover immigration. Um, We didn't mean it to be that way, but that just happened to be when all the big news typically broke. Um, about immigration. One summer, for instance, it was a truck full of young men, men and boys uh, found in a Walmart parking lot in the middle of July. Um, it was a very, actually a very tragic story. Um, the family separations happened during the summer. Um, it just, for some reason, immigrant immigration news would happen during the summer. Um, and then DACA also crossed over onto my beat as well. And so so I ended up kind of covering both of those things. We didn't have an immigration reporter in my newsroom. And so um, I covered some of that. We, we split it up, but I did a lot of it um, because of the summer. My my uh, my beat took a hiatus in the summer. And I've been doing that for now, oh, about six years. Um, my biggest immigration stories were, were three or four years ago. Um, and that kind of launched that into being more of a focus area for me. Can you speak a little bit about how you have seen the border change over the years that you have covered immigration and also how you've seen maybe the American temperature towards these um, issues change as well? Sure. 
Um, also, I, I'm going to go a little bit further back or a lot further back than when I, just how long I've been covering it. I've been watching the border change for decades um, as violence erupted along uh, in the border cities in, in Nuevo Laredo and Ciudad Juarez up by El Paso. Um, um, those that changed a lot of things for all of South Texas. Um, it has been a very fluid border my whole life. And, and that began to change when I was in college and beyond. And um, those things started to change. And then the, By the main, way, can, can you just maybe explain what, what it means when you say a fluid border? I don't know exactly if our sure. listeners who don't live on the border can um, picture that. Sure. Yeah. And that's, and that's actually a scary term for a lot of people because they imagine people coming and going without any kind of like check. Um, what I mostly mean is that culturally and people would go over for recreation. Like we would just go over across the border um, to eat and shop. We would go down every, it's actually many times a year down to the border cities to um, go across. We bought like all of our furniture that kind of say we you just went back and forth a lot mm-hmm. um and, and so american u.s citizens stopped going into mexico in in the big leisure numbers um when i was in college the the border is still very fluid for people who work in one city or the other you see this best in el paso and juarez um they they people commute like it's nothing but um and so in that way there's still fluidity, but it is more about necessity. It's more about you work on one side or you, you're taking care of a family member on the other side or something like that. It's, it's not as footloose and fancy free, shall we say, going back and forth. So I wanted to just also talk about anything else that you think people who do not live in Texas in particular um, or any other border states miss when they are trying to understand what's going on with immigration. Well, so I'll, let me put it this way. Oh, and one more change that has happened. I was going to say, since I have been covering immigration, um, what has changed is that it's become a political, um, it's something that people are talking about more politically and the fear like, um, actually our managing editor, Andy Olson and I were talking about this the other day that it used to not be so hard to get people to go on record. You, um, years ago, people were not, didn't mind telling you that their documentation status was in jeopardy or that they were undocumented or, um, and getting interviews with border patrol and government officials was actually not as difficult either. And so now, pastors who are talking about their churches um, having undocumented people in them, um, people who have distant relatives even, no one wants to go on record because they are just so afraid. And um, everyone I've talked to in the who works in this area every day talks about like the massive increase in fear um, that has been has come about with it being so politicized. People are very much afraid of becoming, even our, our school district here in San Antonio, um, there was pressure on them to put out like a, a hard stance on, we will not allow ICE onto our campuses to, to get the kids um, who are undocumented. We have tons of undocumented um, families. And the school district said, we don't even really want to make that big statement as as much as we want our families to feel safe, we also don't want, to, they were afraid of drawing the attention of um, government officials who might want to make a point. So it's it's escalated to a place where I would say the entire, entire conversation on both sides is pretty much ruled by fear, <laughs> um, hmm. which makes it really difficult to report. It makes it very difficult to, and you don't want to convince somebody to go on record and then have them have their worst fears come true because we just don't know. Um uh, a, a story from CT uh, related to that is I remember we had a young man who was undocumented who actually lived with us for a few years, uh, and he was in the process of trying to get documented, working with lawyers in downtown Chicago. And one of our editors decided that would make an interesting story, so they featured him in a story about that his situation and how hard it was to get papers. And he was featured in a full-page picture of him 
Huh. And I oh, just Lord. can't imagine that happening nowadays. He was basically saying, yeah, I'm here illegally. I mean, I'm trying to get legalized, but I'm here and here's my picture. <laughs> yeah. That would yeah. have been uh, had, late see, 90s, late, you know, 1990s and uh, completely different atmosphere then than it is now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, I have people saying like, well, d please don't put, you know, the, the city that my church is in because I'm afraid they'll be able to trace it back to me. and people. I, and then sometimes I'm like, I think you're you might be giving these government agencies a lot of investigative credit. <laughs> like, it's harder to find you than you think. Um, on the other hand, you know, the last, and especially I've realized when I'm working with pastors and people in ministries is that I, in some ways they feel conflicted because they want to help me out and like put me in touch with sources. But on the other hand, they, their main priority is to minister to people and, and like love them. And it's not necessarily loving to be like, here, I want you to talk to the reporter and you're going to have a bunch of sleepless nights for the next you know year wondering who's read that story and so th that has actually brought up a lot of tension for um pastors and ministry leaders so that actually kind of transitions to the next question i have for you which is maybe you could tell us some of the different ways in which you've met and encountered christians in this immigration beat I'm talking about anyone from the migrants who are coming up from Central America, those that are trying to advocate for immigrants, people who work in border control, ICE. Christians are all over the place in this. Um, first of all, in the, in the immigrant community, we I mean, I think that like World Relief gives great numbers and explains that so many of the so many refugees from around the world are Christians. Um, they're either fleeing places where Christians are persecuted or they, you know, have a religious sponsor getting them here. They, and then just statistically speaking, the numbers right now, for instance, on the Southern border, we're seeing mostly Central Americans coming in. Um, and those folks are actually like, large, there's huge numbers of evangelicals in that group. And then when you have, when you look at countries like Mexico, you have more Catholic immigrants. It's a huge segment of people. Another interesting thing about immigration being kind of a sleeper issue up until recently is that the government doesn't have a super robust, um, as we are witnessing right right now super they don't like have a plan really for what to do for these people these folks and there's not um there's not a bunch of it's not like public school you know where there's the government runs schools the government doesn't run refugee resettlement stuff they contract that out and most of the people taking those contracts have been christian organizations and they've come under some fire for that because that also meant that they were the ones who were contracted to say receive the children who'd been separated from their families and there's those who believe that that christian organizations shouldn't have agreed to do that the christians i've met who did take those kids and who did go ahead and uphold their contracts with the office of refugee resettlement said that they wanted to ensure that those children who were in a traumatic situation were being cared for and were being loved in accordance with their um, Christian values and that they were being protected and cared for. And so you have, um, in, you have Christian organizations and you also have people who are deeply compelled by their personal um, faith. I've met Christians in law enforcement, the police force and fire departments, and uh, those folks will tell you they, they got into their job because they want to help people. And this was, it seemed like a really practical way to help people. And, but with law enforcement, in addition to helping people, they also have to, um, in sometimes like one of them put it to me, you have to be with people on the worst day of their life. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually working on a story about that, about how do they represent Christ to the people 
who see them as the enemy and how do they see their loyalty to their job and their loyalty to Christ. And then um, uh, the churches who are tasked with, not tasked with, but who get to care for these people, how do they minister to them and their unique needs and um, and their unique hurts because they see a lot of really sad stuff. And um, I think there's there's been calls lately for more mental health and more staffing for that such things for border patrol for the law enforcement. Yeah, because they are first they're they're overworked and they are I mean they find folks who have died on the journey often. The South Texas desert, Arizona desert, Southern California desert, that's not you don't mess around. Um that's dangerous dangerous territory. And I think a lot of times by the time they get here, people are already fatigued. They're already, um, pretty compromised in their health and they were not bargaining for the Sonoran desert or the Chihuahuan desert. And, um, so yeah, border patrol does a lot of emergency care mm-hmm. anyway. So that's, those are all the, I mean, and I will say too, that churches like right now, San Antonio is one of the cities that is having this massive influx of Central American families. Um, and my friends in town who are pastors are opening up their congregate, opening up their doors to their sanctuaries and housing people and, you know, finding showers for people, you know, showers for people to use and that kind of stuff. It's a, it is a all hands on deck right now. <laughs> Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline, a journey to discover an up-close view of the cross, revealing God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. I talked to author Skip Heitzig. Your book is actually structured in a pretty specific way. It sounds a lot like zooming out as far back as you could possibly get, like a Google Maps. <laughs> yeah. Why did you decide to structure it that way? I wanted to show the Bible. You can look at it from 30 miles you know, up in outer space that there's one solid line that goes through the whole book as a theme. And if you forget everything else in it, don't forget that. I think that was Jesus' own approach in Luke 24, after the resurrection, when Jesus appears to two disciples. It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He kind of went through thematically, but from the beginning all the way through to show his point. And so Bloodline takes that approach. To join the journey, visit thebloodlinebook.com. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. Um, so I wanted to go back to a story that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, and that's about the family separations at the border. Could you give us an update on that, Becca, about whether families are still being separated at the border? Sure. So it is it is no longer the official policy um, to separate them automatically. However, there are still a hundred different not a hundred, I don't know exactly how many, but there's still numerous ways that families can be separated. A lot of it has to do with the detention facilities um, and how those are broken down. The, they separate men and women and, and the children go with the women. So if a child is separating, tra- traveling with their father, uh, it, be, it becomes very difficult for them to stay together. 
possible. There are, I believe there are shelters that allow that, but so some of it is like a logistical hurdle of, of, well, we don't have a category to fit you in. And then if there's any reason to believe that the parents are um, part of a drug trafficking organization or um, basically are going to need to be immediately deported, they will take the kids away and the kids go into ORR, um, these children's detention facilities. Those have existed for forever. Unaccompanied minors, children who are taken out of dangerous situations as they cross the border, um, that kind of thing that that has always happened. And so it's going to be very difficult to root out all the different re- like to go through, through and on a case by case basis, decide, does this count as like a family separation of the type that we saw last summer? Or is this the kind of separation that we've been seeing in practice for forever? Hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of different exceptions and caveats and programs and loopholes and all the things that just kind of make this type of stuff super complex when you're trying to build a more nuanced policy, um, but does not always work out like that. Absolutely. The and I will I think that is what makes immigration so difficult as a subject and why there's so much fear is because it's really hard to understand and it's really hard to, I mean, our, just, if you look at the, the timeline of laws that have been passed and the efforts at reform, and it's just this kind of rickety, crazy system. It's, it's hard to understand. And you were asking earlier, um, is the view from Texas any different? And I, I will say that covering immigration here there would be this kind of funny recurring thing that would happen. It happened with family separations with the, um, with the smuggling incident that the tragedy where the guys were in the truck. Um, all of the sudden immigration, there's some big event that's makes national news and all of the, the national news organizations come into town. People would kind of fly in and try to understand all of this, in the moment in light of this tragedy. And because we didn't have this deep understanding of the context, it, it always, the, the coverage was always really jarring. You don't understand how normal it is for people to come and go. And so like the thought that a truck full of 18 guys could, could get as far as San Antonio just seems like what? And obviously we've seen people under, misunderstand the geography of like where San Antonio is and um, where Houston is and those kind of things. And so the, the whole thing seems bigger and scarier because we didn't have a a baseline. No, I mean, I think that that happens in almost every different type of reporting. Obviously it happens in religion reporting all the time where you don't spend a ton of time in the faith community. You drop in one Sunday and you're like, what is going on? (laughs) <laughs> right. And there's also yeah. the dynamics of how things get edited when they get back to the New York office. I remember when I lived in Mexico City, I, I knew the time reporter there. He said he was always stunned with the difference between the story he turned in to Time and the story that got printed in Time magazine. Hmm. Because the editors mm-hmm. there had no sensibilities about some of the things he was saying, and they would try to simplify things to make it easier for readers and uh, ended up misrepresenting the story. So you've got different layers of... Um, misunderstanding going on that makes it difficult to know uh, what's going on a lot of times. Oh, and what's newsworthy? Like, it seems like, what? When really the, it it happens frequently. Mm -hmm. I think when people first hear about Mm -hmm. students crossing the border to go to school, I mean, I know the first time I heard about it, I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? That's a huge story. And then (laughs) about Five seconds later, they were like, uh, yeah, lots. It happens all the time. Super normal. Always has happened. Not a big deal. Um, and so it went from being, the story went from being, oh my gosh, these students cross the border every day to, wow, what's life like when you do that? Um, what's life like for this huge group of kids? <laughs> and so that, um, that nuance makes the story... I think it takes it out of the sensational and puts it in the um, let's try to understand our 
fellow humans and what they're going through every day. So when we talk again about Christians being in all different sectors of this issue or parts of this issue, have you witnessed people's Christian faith um, giving them a unique ability to connect or ally with each other or help each other out? Um, I think there's definitely the a role in the trust factor for immigrants who are coming over here, who are people of faith. Um, they are so relieved to find a church and uh, whether that is a Catholic church, the Catholic churches down here are extremely active in immigration, but a lot of the Protestant churches and evangelical churches as well are starting to want to do the like mercy ministry and outreach type stuff, um, meeting people down at the bus stations and making sure that they have a toothbrush and shoelaces and um, medicine for their kids if they need it or something like that. Um, there's, there's a lot of, there's become a lot of opportunity for mercy ministry. And so the immigrants themselves are very comforted when they encounter people of faith, I think, because, um, it's, it's a little softer. It's a lot softer Mm -hmm. than, I mean, Mm -hmm. the, the border patrol and ice and those folks, they're not going to, they can't legally do a lot of the like softer human care stuff, but they also often don't because for other reasons. And the, just the little human kindnesses of like, like here, use my cell phone to call your sister or, um, are you hungry? Do we need to stop and get you some food? The churches don't have all the rules and regulations and they're able to do a lot of that, um, humane stuff. What are the ways in which you are seeing Christians talk past each other or kind of use their faith, um, in a way to maybe justify what they're doing? Um, but it's not necessarily speaking the same, I don't know, Christian dialect as their brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, I mean, the, the funny part about the whole thing is that you've got really, you really do have Christians on the leading ends of both poles on this issue. (laughs) You have got the, the churches that are taking blankets down to the people waiting on the bridge in Matamoros, Mexico and doing it in the name of Jesus. And you have people who are um, evangelical churches where they are, I don't, not open to having undocumented immigrants in the church because they feel like that is living in sin. And so you've got, you, you've got the whole gamut and I have, I want to be very delicate in how I say that in that there are Christians who are deeply concerned about, um, this issue as a national security issue. And there are those who are deeply concerned about it as a mercy and humanitarian issue. I'm wondering if you've seen what I've seen in, uh, some communities in California, uh, one community up in Wisconsin, that is to say where we have Christians and churches who have very conservative immigration policies. That is to say they want to they build a wall. They want to let fewer immigrants in. And they're also in their church part of a committee that helps settle immigrants that are already here. In other mm-hmm. words, they, they're living in both zones. They politically have one view, but if we have immigrants ab- among us, we have to be, the Bible calls us to be uh, helpful toward them. Have you, do you have people like that at the border? Absolutely. I would say that that's, um, it, in the cities on the border, that's like a huge, a hugely, that's a very common stance, is I don't like it, but I'm certainly not going to turn away somebody who's like, dying of thirst on my front porch. Um, and then you see also a a ton of compassion for refugees and asylees who are part of the legal processes by which those people get here. Um, 
you know, because asylum seekers are, are following the law. Those who are, if you find someone who's wearing the ankle monitor and waiting for their day in court, like they are, they are following the law. And, um, they, there's a lot of compassion for those people. Like, even if the person takes a pretty hard line stance on legal is legal and illegal is illegal, those same people often are like, okay, well, once it is legal, game on, I'm ready to, ready to come and help you and serve. So there you go. That's the border (laughs) for you right there. Yep. It seems like it's actually a little bit less angry there than maybe the national discourse around this topic is. Yes. Well, well, no, that's not true. Um, It is less angry in that everyone is talking about it, not just the angry people. (laughs) The angry people are still still here Mm -hmm. um, and people are angry. And people are scared. And those emotions, I don't want to say that like down here, it's just like, whatever. Um, however, there, it is such a reality. It is so prevalent and it is such a practical thing of like, we don't have time to be angry. We're bringing blankets. We're bringing, um, yoga mats for people to sit on, on the ground, you know, that kind of thing. We're trying to help or, um, how could I be angry? Seven people I know are in that situation and all of them have different stories and I love them. You know, you know, you, you know, people, you know, people who do the work, you know, people in law enforcement, CPP, uh, Customs Border Patrol hires within the community. So like those guys grew up with undocumented people. Um, and it is so, it's more it's so common that it's not so much that people aren't angry or aren't afraid it's that they're also everything in between Hmm. so becca i'm curious what are ways that either you're seeing christians helping um others listen or yeah helping each other listen to the other side or what are ways that christians ought to be helping each other listen to the other side Um, so there is a pastoral effort, I think, among pastors who begin to engage this work. Um, basically once a pastor opens up their doors to asylum seekers who've just been let out of detention or refugees, once they start getting involved in like the refugee welcome program and that kind of thing, once you open your doors to these people, often they they, they stay open and they realize like what, um, how rich the work is and they, they enjoy doing it and their congregations get really into it. And, um, so those pastors have been increasingly taking public, um, have been making public statements and producing, um, videos or, speaking at public events and that kind of thing to, to help soften this discourse a little bit and to say like, here's how I understood it. Let me tell you these stories. This is, you know, how, and kind of take people along the journey that they went on. Um, that is what pastors are doing. Um, a lot of people are saying, I'm not going to try to solve immigration. I'm just going to love the people in front of me. And there is definitely a need for um, more of it. I don't know. I think that like all conversations, more conversation (laughs) between people who disagree about this politically. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, I think it, uh, let's see. I think that it needs to not be, hold on. A lot of times it's put out there in, articles or videos or a sermon or a talk and people don't get to engage and there's not it's really a, a safe place basically, right it's, it's more of a yeah. and you can you can accept or reject what you want um the dialogue aspect needs to be fostered because that's really um where people can humanize the other side and i i've seen it in places where people are like i know I have an unpopular opinion. And if I say that out loud, if I ask this honest question, I'm just going to be booed 
out of the room, you know, and, and that's in church, <laughs> you know, that's in Sunday school. Part of the reason I'm so excited about doing like this immigrant communities work is because if we can get people to know and volunteer or get, just get to know the immigrants around them, it increases more dialogue. It needs to be something that people can talk about over lunch with someone who disagrees and it not be inflammatory because they're more informed. They have more um, interaction to call on. And like one pastor said, like the most effective way to combat all of this fear and misinformation is to say, well, here's what I've seen in the immigrants that I know. <laughs> and, and, and the reality is that if you're living in a, in or near a major American city, there are immigrants to know (laughs) and, and find if the church can find ways to highlight their stories and help people know them, um, by inviting the, you know, that will increase this, this human exposure so that the conversations can center around something other than policy. Because as long as the conversations are centered on policy, you know, you can only, you can agree or disagree, but when they're centered on human interactions and human stories, you can go, oh, that just, it broke my heart or, oh, that made me so happy. And then you start getting into the, the human part of it. And I think that that's, so that's a really messy convoluted answer as to what we need more of. It's the same thing we need around every hot button issue, which is to remember that there's people people involved and to get to know those people. Um, and Christians should be the ones introducing you to those people. <laughs> I remember we had a, a Catholic nun on a few months ago now, I forget. Last year. And I had met her at a conference and had thought would she'd be a good guest for us. But the, the, one in, the one story that made me impressed with her was she was doing the type of thing you're talking about, Becca. She, her job was to aid and comfort people who were coming across the border who were desperate. Mm-hmm. She also was good friends with the border patrol, the head of the border patrol in her area. And she understood mm-hmm. that he had a job to do. Uh, and his job was, oh, yeah. to, was to secure the United States from uh, uh, criminal types or whatever. And they would often have conversations together about how they could help one another in each of their jobs. In other words, they each understood... Yeah. That uh, and it was immaterial whether they what their political views were. They each had a job to do in regard to this specific issue, and they wanted to work together as much as possible so they each could be successful in the areas that they were supposed to be successful in. And that struck me as a really good illustration of how, uh, while we're deciding what the policies should be, we could still be uh, humane and uh, generous toward one another and toward the people who are suffering. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I would, my, my great hope would be that if somebody ever were to come to, or if somebody ever were to have the thought of, I really feel like I need to know the people, or I really need to understand this better, that the first place they would look would be the church, (laughs) you know, for a, and, and right now, honestly, like the church is so in the mix as far as the mercy and compassion that they could really do that. Like when people say, I want to understand this better. I want to meet these people. I send them to churches um, who are doing the work. And I, I hope that there's more and more of that, you know, as opposed to sending them to a, an immigration lawyer or an advocacy organization. Um, I love sending them to the church because I know that they're going to just meet the people and see the, the human to human interaction. Well, thank you so much for this rich discussion, sharing your own approach, Becca, and giving us some of your analysis. Anyone who has feedback for this can tweet at us. We're at CT Podcasts, or they can send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. This podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to our magazine. One of the articles in this most recent issue of CT is one that's Written by a former Christianity Today employee, Andy Crouch, who wrote about transhumanism. Mark, were you on the episode a couple of years ago when we talked about transhumanism? I forget, but I just pointed to that article in my—it'll be in my next gallery report. Awesome. Andy Crouch often has wise things to say, and when he talks about topics like technology, he has especially wise things to say. It's a review of a book that talks about the transhumanism movement, 
what I like about the article is not just, oh, those transhumanists, they're really weird and they've got strange ideas about what it means to be a human being, but there are moments when the finger is pointed back at us and how we participate in a kind of a, a mental subculture that makes transhumanism possible, stronger, better, faster. Uh, and so it's a good, it's not a, it's not a browbeating article. Uh, but it just honestly says what the situation is and how we inadvertently, as even as Christians, participate in in ideas that uh, transhumanists take to their logical extremes. So it's it's a very thoughtful piece. The other thing you should be reminding readers of, if they subscribe now, they will get the cover story in the May issue, Becca's story uh, of the, the communities and Young Life's ministry to those communities, especially the young people in uh, in and around the border towns. It's true. Okay, I did find which episode you want to listen to in case people are interested in listening to Quick to Listen's take on transhumanism. That was a while ago, basically two years ago. It was episode 55, Can Christians Affirm Transhumanism? But we also recommend you read Andy Crouch's article in our April issue, and we recommend that you read Becca's article, which is going to be in our May issue. And all of that is possible by becoming a subscriber of Christianity Today, and that is at orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, so now is the time of the show that we talk about those moments that have brought us joy recently, otherwise known as precious moments. Go ahead, Mark. Sunday night, call from my son. You have another grandchild. Number six for me. So that was a special. And then there were lots of, I think what was more, the fact, that fact, of course, is a precious moment, but we were on a group chat. So there were lots of reactions from my daughter and son-in-law in New Orleans and my daughter and son-in-law in West Chicago and everybody saying how cute. This is the one thing I, I still don't. I understand culturally that all brides are beautiful and all babies are cute. But when a baby is first born, objectively, they look like they're suffering. <laughs> but because it was my grandchild, she was cute. I mean, evolutionarily, you know, they're supposed to be cute so that we want to keep them alive. They have Exactly. Because yeah. otherwise they're too yeah. exhausting. So welcome to the world, Julia Joy. Oh, we got a name, JJ. That's cool. All right, Mark. So you talked about the gallery report a couple seconds oh, yeah. ago. As I mentioned last week, it's the best, most thorough, most thoughtful newsletter in the world that's ever been produced. Wow. <laughs> Morgan was encouraging me to, to do speak a little accurately more, to about speak, it. no, to sell it more. <laughs> so I thought that would be a good come on. So if you're interested in that type of newsletter, subscribe to the Galley Report by going to ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report. And it's a weekly newsletter in which I link to uh, articles. Uh, and comment on them, and Morgan beat me to the punch here, and uh, the one, one article I linked from the CT webpages was uh, Andy's book review on on the issue of transhumanism. It would be the type of thing. And then I make a couple comments about it to give people something to think about. Absolutely, he does. All right, Becca, your turn. Um, so my daughter, keeping on the theme of our progeny, um, my daughter turned five last week, and... Um, um, the, the precious moment, in addition to her absolutely chaotic birthday party, um, was at their school. They do what's called the walk around the sun. And they hold a little globe and they walk around the sun. And each time they get to all the way around, we say, okay, when Moira, Moira, my daughter, when she was one, what did she like to do? And we get to talk about her when she was one. And then she walks around again. They say, okay, now she's two. And we talk about what she liked to do when she was two. And um, it is I mean, as a mom, I'm just like crying the whole time because I'm thinking about her growing up, but it's a very sweet time where she gets to hear us t tell stories about her and her little friends at school get to, you know, giggle and laugh and, and have fun with stories about her growing up. And, um, yeah, so that was my precious moment in watching my little person make her five, five trips around the sun. That's great. What a great story. I want yeah. someone to do that for me. There you go. I don't remember the first 10 years of my life. <laughs> we don't want someone like, to do it for me. For like the 12-year-olds? Yeah. Because that's a lot. Yeah, especially for some of us who are 
in our retirement age years. Yeah, but you would love that. I mean, if people knew had stories for you, Mark. For every year? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I would be bored. You would die. (laughs) It'd be like a weekend away. We'd be like, come on, for the weekend away, we're going to tell stories about me all weekend. All right, well, that's what I want. My birthday's in a couple weeks, so. Okay. People who are listening to this, hint, hint. (laughs) Walk around the sun. Exactly. All right. Are you on social media? Do you want to tell people where they can find you on Twitter? Sure. I am at Becca McNeil. How do you spell Becca? On Twitter. And McNeil. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Not the way you think. Either one. Uh, It's B-E-K-A-H-M-C-N-E-E-L. That's me on Twitter. Um, If you want to see pictures of my insane children, you can follow me on Instagram. It's mostly the back of their heads, but uh, that is Wander Becca, W-A-N-D-E-R-B-E-K-A-H. All right. That's awesome. Okay. So my precious moment is that I have been running more than normal. Basically, I ran a marathon a couple years ago and then basically ran like 10 times in 2017 and then maybe 20 times in 2018. But now I probably run like 20 times this year. So I think I'm getting back together with running. And most recently, I ran like four times in the past five days. So that was... Nice, because it's been perfect running weather. Yeah. So no wonder you look exhausted when you come into the office. Whoa. <laughs> wow. I'm glad I didn't stop by. I actually went running during lunch yesterday. Glad uh, I didn't stop no. by your office. Though. Actually, she never looks exhausted. She always impresses me as a person with more energy than she deserves to have. So. Deserve. <laughs> I think I spend it very wise. I am the most deserving. I was going to say, you spend it well. You probably you. spend it yeah, That's probably I, a better I, way to put it. That's for sure. But <laughs> she's a woman of incredible energy. That's for sure. So a couple weeks ago, when I was on one of our Zoom calls, apparently I looked down at my computer at some point, and then Jeremy, my co- my boss's computer froze, and he was like, are you okay? Did you fall asleep during the meeting? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? And, you know, anyway, I was glad I could blame that on technology. All right, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Click to Listen. This podcast is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. And I think we did a great job convincing you to become a subscriber this week. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And it's produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred with music by Sweeps. We'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.